Chapter 12 Lev started for the door. I'd better go, he said, before my trouble spreads to all of you. Wait, Carrick caught his arm. Essie, do they know Lev's here? No, they're swarming all over. Carrick turned to Piotr. Take Lev to Mother Morrig. No, I'm no coward, Lev exclaimed. This is all my doing, and I must pay. You'll not help Gerard sitting in a cell. Look, Carrick went on, pressing home his point. I need you. The search will pass. All you have to do is hide until it's over. Lev looked undecided. Who is this Mother Morig? How can you be sure she'll take me in? She's a washerwoman, Piotr said. A caps are all worn out, and Carrick's only tinker who can keep them patched. She can't always buy him either. Lev looked from Carrick to Piotr, still doubtful. I'd rather you took me there, sir. Carrick grinned. Maybe so, but you'd never arrive, for I haven't the faintest idea where she lives. She'll believe you sent me with this boy. This boy goes between us all the time. But to ease your mind, Carrick slipped off his kerchief ring and handed it not to Lev, but to Piotr. Morig knows it well. Piotr pushed it toward Lev. Nay, let him have charge of it. Mother Morig will likely think I stole it. Garrick shook his head firmly. Oh, when she knows you for my good and honest errand lad. Flustered by this sudden tribute, Piotr stowed the ring inside his belt pouch, then fastened up his coat. The tinker turned to Lev. Now will you go? Lev nodded. He and Piotr slipped down the back stair and across the courtyard, even as the redcoats tramped into the front hall. The street outside swarmed with soldiers bearing lighted torches, so Piotr took Lev around the stables and over the back wall. From there, they moved on, climbing steadily away from the lake through narrow alleyways, until at last they came to Mother Morrig's door. One peek at Piotr's face, and she shooed them into her warm kitchen. No need of Carrick's ring, 
or of too much explanation either. Them red coats won't bother me. I'll hide you gladly, Mother Morick said to Lep, and went to fetch bedding. The moment she was gone, Piotr pushed Carrick's ring into Lef's hand. Here, you give it back, he said, and headed for the door. Lef barred his way. Stay, you must. Let me pass, Piotr demanded. I've done my bit. I want to go. Go where? Lef answered. You can't find Gerard on your own. Hear me, he went on, as Piotr stood, unpersuaded. I've minded that boy since he could barely walk. I've spent more time with him than his own mother and father, and I'd give my life to see him safely back in Scandibar. But even now, I see his best hope is if you and I and Carrick all work together. Carrick's counting on you. So am I. He offered back the ring. Beata took it, to Lef's evident relief, just as Mother Moreg came to lead them to their hiding place, a cubbyhole under her stairs. Its entrance was a low door, little more than a hatch behind a heavy oak chest piled with neatly folded laundry. On the cubbyhole's stone floor lay a feather mattress, heaped with blankets and eiderdowns, a dark lantern, and a plain white chamber pot. The air was cold down there, and smelled of earth. Piotr shivered at the sudden chill after the brief and welcome warmth of Moreg's hearth. Sleep well, said Moreg. I'll push the chest back now. There came sounds of the chest scraping over the floor. The creak of Moret's stair above their heads. And then the house was dark and quiet. Just like all the others in the row. A row like all the others, going down and down towards the quayside. Piotr let himself down gingerly into the softness of feathers and took in the luscious smell of clean sheets. Such luxury! He'd never before experienced the like. He pulled the blankets over him, feeling guilty and thinking of Gerard out there somewhere, not on a feather bed, for sure.
his mind wandered. Gratifying that Carrick should trust him to bring Lep here. But why did he not come also? Maybe, yes, Piotr was certain. He'd gone to track down Wizard Matt. Lep and Piotr had not been settled long when they heard the tread of boots on cobbles. Doors banged. Then came the sound of voices. Lep put out the lantern and there they waited, holding their breath. At last came a knocking on Mother Morrig's door, so loud that Piotr started, braced as he was. Morrig made the soldiers wait, treading the stairs heavily and not near so spryly as she'd gone up, sliding back bolts and waiting the key in the lock with a huff and a puff and a groan. What is it? Whatever's going on? he heard her say, and sounding quite quavery too. We're looking for an outlaw. Has any strange man come knocking on your door, mother? Say no. Only wives and errand lads with dirty wash. A pause, a mutter of voices, then go back to bed, mother, and keep your door locked. Do you hear? The soldiers moved on down the street, while Morag locked and barred the door. Good night, she called softly through the cubby door. You can rest easy now. Well, Lef said, settling down again with a rare stab at a joke, that's the first time I've been called somebody's dirty wash. Piotr didn't answer. He listened to Lef turn this way and that, until at last the man's breathing deepened. But he lay wide awake. No chance of sleep for him. His fault that Gerard was taken, his. He had left the inn and put Gerard at risk. Oh, to have caused such deadly harm. He doubled up, nursing an old and dreadful secret. This was not 
the first time. His mind filled, as it so often did, in the middle hour of night, with vivid images of slicked blood soaking into moist black earth. Four years, and yet they were still as sharp as if it were only yesterday. Nord, his father, lying by their campfire, slashed by robber blades, and he, Piotr, sobbing for Nord to get off. The robbers took all their wares, cheap trifles of his father's peddler trade. But that was not the worst of it. Piotr tossed uncomfortably. One of them, Roku, had stripped Nors of the only two things of value that he owned. His belt and a silver ring set with a sky stone. Old and worn and shiny with long years of use, the leather belt itself was worthless. But the silver buckle was wrought in the shape of two hands that clasped when you brought the two halves together. Your hand in nine, my lad. When I'm gone, you wear it, and know my hand is there to steady you. At the sight of that robber taking the ring and buckle off his father's person, Piotr had thrown himself upon him, kicking and shouting and beating on him with his fists. But the man had only laughed and thrown him off. The ring, proving too small for his big fingers, Loki had put it in his pocket. But the belt fit, and there he'd stood, arrogant, immense, showing it off as Nors sighed out his last breath. Walter grunted, Papa. Oh, if only he could recall Nors's face, but he could not. Only the blood-soaked chest and Roki clasping those two hands over his middle. The belt fastened, the man had made to leave, then turned back, drawing his knife again. We best see to the boy, he growled in a rough, gravelly voice. And that would have been the end of it, had not another robber stayed his hand. Oh, come on, Roki! Who's to hear him? Still, 
the man would have killed him if folk had not come running then in answer to his cries. The robbers fled. The kindly travellers buried moors and offered to take Beata with them. But how kind would they have been if he had told the truth of it, that he himself had brought about his father's death. To have betrayed one's own father. Honest to a fault, Norse had learned at great cost to be wary of strangers on the road. Trust no one, lad, he'd say, pointing out old scars. If a man smiles, sit behind his eyes and find a wolf. Despite all that, on the morning of his father's death, he had come upon those smiling strangers at the river's edge. Hungry, they'd said. He had led them to his father's fire, had watched dumbstruck as the knives went deep into Norse's chest. Fleeing his father's hasty grave, Piotr had followed the road south to Penlanga, grieving for Norse and raging at those murderous thieves. How he longed to find them and make them pay. But how could he, a mere seven-year-old boy? Besides, he could not recall what those men had looked like either. Only that they had seemed huge. Yet he had one man's voice, deep, gravelly tones he'd remember as long as he lived, and the very words he spoke. And a name, Roke, or Roki, or something close. By the time Piotr reached Penlango, he was resolved. One day, he'd find the man and have a reckoning. Slipping down into the tangled warrens of the fishing quarter, Piotr had learned to vie with other urchins for bread and a hole in the wall. Not that people hadn't tried to take him in, He'd kept to the streets by choice. Trust no one. Old father, Peter whispered into the dark. I wish you could have known Garrett and Lev and Gerard most of all. He's rich. He has everything. 
yet is he surprised for me. Jared had brought him food and his own good warm clothes, the very ones Piotr was now wearing. While in return, he'd been only willful and suspicious. If I hadn't run off, he wouldn't have had to follow me, and we'd still be safe with Carrot. Oh, where are you, Jer? Please, please be alive, and in your own right mind still. Children, Gerard was alive. But he was not entirely in his right mind. And he was already far from Penrangoth and going farther by the minute. To be more precise, Gerard lay in a wagon that had already crossed Long River and was at that moment rolling northeast toward a line of distant hills. Behind him rumbled a whole line of wagons bearing all the other stolen people, all still locked in sleep. Gerard awoke only once during that long, dark journey. Dazed and confused, he gazed into the dark, closed space beneath the wagon's cover, with no idea of where he was or how he had gotten there, not even realising that his hands and feet were bound until a really big jolt started him awake. His hands and feet were numb, not just from the rope, but from bitter cold. He shivered, recalling how, in his final waking moments, he had stood behind the smokehouses as a dozen men hefted people like sacks of grain into giant wagons. When he had tried to break free, they had held him while Remler tipped something bitter down his throat. Fear brought him up another notch. He and those other people. Where was Remler taking them? Oh, what was his father going to say? Gerard raised his head and took a breath to shout, then let it go, remembering the two who had bound him and put him in the wagon, even as his head had begun to spin. He, kicking and struggling, let me go, let me go, I say. Shut your mouth, do you? Falco, raising his fist to strike. The other man, Dreg, 
catching it, checking the blow. She don't want him marked, remember? Gerard fell back again, garish lights bursting like stars all around him. His mouth was dry and his belly hollow. But even the thought of water made him feel sick. He closed his eyes, but still the lights flashed behind his lids. And this frightened him and made him feel worse. From time to time, people drifted by. Lev, Lerto, Nasida, Lerto, Carrick, all of them sullen and anxious, searching for something. Once, Regio whispered in his ear. I've seen nothing, only darkness. The wagon fleet rolled on until it reached a narrow valley in those hills, though Gerard was quite unaware. He came to lying on a cot in a dank cave stinking of mould. Beside him was a small table. On the table a lantern burned. Behind the flame shadows moved. He's awake, Crooker. Go tell Gremlin I'm bringing him. Gerard stiffened. Dreg. Go yourself, Crooker growled. Gerard heard a scuffle, a crack of bone on rock, then boots receding rapidly. Dreg's great pudgy face hung over him. Up, boy. Remler wants to see ya. Now! <laughs>